Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the history of coffee, one of the most popular beverages in the world, of course. I was, uh, I'll tell you what, I was absolutely bloody fascinated to learn more about coffee. For example, it might surprise you to learn we've only been drinking it for about 600 years, way less time than I thought. I sort of, you know, I thought it'd been around for thousands, but no, only 600 years or so. I mean, I don't, I, I don't drink coffee at all. I, I barely, barely drink it. Like, last time I had a coffee was, I don't know, be several years ago. I don't know. It doesn't taste very nice, does it? I mean, I don't really see, I don't know what people see in it. I, I don't understand why people like it so much, but I did work in cafes back in Melbourne for years and years. And um, yeah, I'm still, even though I don't, you know, really drink it. I was still very interested to learn about it and, you know, how it spread across the world and some of the impacts that it's had on, on human history. Um, it's spread across the globe has, has actually had a range of very interesting historical and, and political consequences, not to mention, you know, the economic ones as well as, you know, different people in different parts of the world sought to cash in on, on it as, as it became more and more popular. Uh, this topic was suggested, by the way, by alert listener Bruns, who uh, suggested this as uh, yeah as, as something I should have a look into. And I, I tell you what, I'm bloody glad they did as well. I reckon you might yeah, you might enjoy learning a thing or two about uh, something that is obviously so ubiquitous in today's world. It's just one of those things you take for granted, isn't it? Like you don't really think about where it came from or how it got to the point it did as you know a, a, as a cultural institution or that sort of thing. Like if you had to guess, here you go. If you had to guess where coffee originated, what where, what would you say? I was I was dead bloody wrong. I. I I'd thought it come from, I don't know, the Americas or something, but I was way, way off. It actually originated in Ethiopia and uh, was spread around the world uh, from the city of Mocha in uh, in Yemen. So I did learn a lot. I learned a lot while re- uh, researching this episode, and I, and I reckon you might as well. So thanks so much to Bruns there. You'll uh, you'll be you'll be sl- you'll be a slightly more interesting person, revered listener, uh, to have at a dinner party as you you know impress everyone with your with your coffee facts. So yes, yeah, there you go. That's that's the that's the, that's what this episode is all about. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's kick things off with uh, with the history of coffee. Buckle in because we're off down the track. Here we go. We're going all the way back to, uh, well, uh, honestly, I'm not entirely sure with this one because coffee's origin story is steeped in myth and legend. Um, I suppose now is as good a time as any to say that a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today hasn't been proven to an overwhelming, you know, overwhelmingly exacting historical criteria. A lot of it is based in truth, obviously, but, uh, you know, you know how people like to tell stories. And so when we're entering, you know, we might be entering into some shakier ground. And and if we do, I'll let you know when, you know, when things are going to get a little bit more speculative today. Anyway. One of the first stories of, of coffee being discovered, which, um, you know, I'll warn you is almost certainly apocryphal, involves a bloke named Kaldi, who was a goat herder, uh, said to have uh, been living in the 9th century, so a very long time ago. Anyway, Kaldi is cutting about in Ethiopia somewhere with his goats, no worries, and he noticed, right, he noticed 
that whenever they ate the berries from these bushes around the place, they'd get a real kick out of it and they'd be energised. So Caldi says to himself, I'll tell you, tell you what, I might, I might actually try these berries myself and, and see what all the fuss is about here. Because what's, you know, what's the worst that could happen? A very cavalier attitude towards that sort of thing, you would have thought. But he bungs a handful of them into his gob, chews them up and whew, woof, great big bloody you know rush of energy because of the caffeine. Brilliant, loving it. So he rushes off to a nearby monastery and he says, listen here, you lot, check out these berries. Bloody brilliant they are. Give you a right kick up the ass. They taste, I mean, taste a bit like a goat's ass, to be honest, but still check it out. And uh, the monks go, mate, what are you talking about? Get back to your bloody goats. Give me these berries. What's this nonsense talking about eating goats off the... What are you, goat yourself, mate? Come on, give, give me it. Bloody goat herder. What a nuisance. Get these... Give, give me these bloody berries, mate. Anyway, the monks... They chuck the berries they take off and they chuck him on they chuck the berries onto a fire and then oh what's this? What's this? What a delicious smell, my goodness me. Let's get them berry seeds out of the ashes of the fire and oh here's where the story gets a a little a little more questionable. Let's get them berry the, 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 them seeds out of the fire and imme- immediately realize that the best way to consume them is to grind them up and put them in hot water and thereby invent coffee as a drink? Yeah, nah. Probably not. Probably not. That's probably not how it happened there. I, I, I don't give much credence to that story. There are other sort of, you know, legends or myths around the origin of, of coffee. One involves a bloke whose name was Abu al-Hassan al-Shadhili, uh, who was a Moroccan cleric who saw birds eating the berries this time rather than goats. And this and that made him want to try them for himself. Again. What, what is going on with these blokes seeing animals eating stuff and going, oh, yeah, I reckon I'll have a go. And that looks great. Did the first person who ever saw a horse grazing immediately drop down onto all fours and munch up a great big mouthful of, of grass? I mean, bloody hell, what's going on there? Anyway. He apparently chomped on these berries. Yep, energy, vitality, all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. Coffee, sure, whatever. Again, don't believe that. Same story with another fella whose name was Omar. He was exiled from where he lived in Mecca and went off to live in a cave in the desert instead. And, you know, he's having a terrible time. He's starving. He's, oh, he's just hating life. And so he comes across these berries. Oh, terrific. Bit of bush tucker. Beggars can't be choosers. Lovely. So young Omar pops, pops him in his gob. Ugh, oh, ugh, disgusting. No thanks. Uh, oh, tell you what. Better cook them first. Cook them first. That'll improve the flavour. But, oh, oh, bloody no. He pops them on the fire, cooking the berries, absolutely buggers them. That's no good. Even the seed inside them now, it's rock hard, inedible, right? But he goes, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What if I soften them, right, by boiling them up using the fully equipped camp kitchen that I brought with me into exile? I'm not sure about that part again. But no, listen, when he boils these seeds in order to try to soften them, right, they turn the water brown. Delicious smell. Yeah, yeah, drink it up. Yeah, feel terrific. Bloody legend. Omar just discovered coffee. Goes back to Mecca. Gets made into a saint. Sure, sure. All the rest of it. Omar, get around him. All this, all this, yeah, absolute nonsense, of course. It's all nonsense, but it goes to show just how inventive we can be when, you know, we are just lying through our teeth about stuff to be interesting, sure. Um, there's not a lot of valid historical information, all of that, but there are a few interesting botanical tidbits, at least. For example, you'll remember that I referred to the seeds of these uh, these berries, right? And, and that's because coffee beans aren't actually beans at all. They are seeds. They're just called beans because they kind of look like beans, but they are, in fact, seeds. So this is a very handy little bit of, well, actually uh, fuel for, you know, all the pedants out there. And you actually might even be able to well actually me here for calling the coffee fruit a berry. I, I actually couldn't define a definitive ruling on whether it was indeed a berry or rather a droop. And uh, while we're talking about berries, actually, do you know what isn't a berry? I mean, here's, 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 some more, uh, here's some more well actually fuel for you. Here you go. A strawberry is not a berry. A raspberry is not a berry. They are instead accessory fruits and aggregate fruits, uh, respectively. But do you know what are berries, botanically speaking, right? Strap yourselves in. Grapes are berries. Sure. Okay. No worries. Kiwi fruits. 
Yep, okay. Again, getting, getting a bit big for a berry, you would have thought, but a size has nothing to do with berries, as you'll discover. Kiwi fruits are berries, sure. Tomatoes are berries. All right. I mean, <laughs> what the hell? But we are just getting started because technically speaking, cucumbers, avocados, pumpkins, eggplants, and even bananas are all berries. So there is some there is some very, very high-grade, well-actually fuel for you, mate. You are most bloody welcome. You can enjoy being the most insufferable uh, friend in your group as you start correcting people when they, <laughs> when they call strawberries berries and when they eat their favourite fruit, the banana. Anyway, with all that nonsense out of the way, we can, focus, we can focus instead on the actual origin story of coffee, which takes us back to Ethiopia, of course, in the late 15th century. Now, the fruit may have been used by people there as a stimulant in the time before this. That doesn't seem to have ever sort of been decisively proven or, or disproven. But what is known for certain is that the coffee plant was first exported from Ethiopia to Yemen on the other side of the Red Sea there on the, on the, um, on the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, some, it was Somali merchants from, uh, who, who first transported it to Yemen, and it caught on there like you wouldn't believe, particularly with an Islamic order who practiced what is known as Sufism. Now, Sufism is all about you. It's this sort of it's, it's this uh, mystical it's mysticism. It's all rit- rituals and all sorts of other stuff I didn't really understand. Uh, and coffee became a big part of that. Drinking coffee uh, was incorporated into Sufist rituals and, and help people help, help keep people awake while they're you know staying up all night praying or whatever, I don't know. Um, but they weren't the Sufists, they weren't destined to keep it for themselves, however. It was a big part of you know of, of the, their rituals, whatever else. But of course, the drink, it spread throughout Sufist circles and they opened up these coffee houses that people could go and visit and, you know, have a, have a cup of coffee or whatever else like that. And these houses started to open up further and further away from the city of Mocha, right, which was where it had first been, uh, Mocha, like the coffee, M-O-C-H-A, um, where it had first been exported to, or maybe not first, but where it was, you know, first, you know, largely established. This is where a lot of coffee was uh, was then sold on from. And it, it spread further and further out of this Yemeni city of Mocha, right, and and picked up popularity in the area surrounded, for example, in places like Mecca in the early 15th century, very famous holy city, of course, Mecca, and then kept spreading further and further to, to Cairo and Damascus by 1500, and then f- even further to Baghdad and, uh, and Constantinople in the 1550s. Now, Sufist coffee houses in these cities, they catalyzed its spread. You know, the Sufists in these, in, you know, these various cities around the place, they would, uh, they would open up, you know, but, you know, while, while they were instrumental in, in catalyzing its spread, it, it really was just the fact that people just really do bloody love coffee, whether they're Sufists or not. But, of course... Like anything exciting and new, the conservative old religious fuddy-duddies didn't like it and it was quickly banned in many places. Religious conservatives in Mecca banned it in 1511 and in Cairo, a similar thing happened in 1532, although it went further there as all the all the coffee houses, they were raided and sacked. No bloody good at all, right? However, kicking off a trend that will continue throughout the history of this drink, all it took to undo all these bans was the big knobs in charge actually trying it, and then all the bands just magically disappeared. Sultan Suleiman I, Suleiman the Magnificent, right, the the leader of the Ottoman Empire at the time, he personally overturned many of the bands in the 16th century on coffee. He did this personally himself, right, issuing a, a fatwa through one of his religious uh, advisors, counsellors there, saying that no, coffee was to be, you know, freely available, whatever else like that. Nothing could stop the popularity of this new drink. It had conquered the Middle East by the mid-16th century, and from there, it began its conquest 
of the globe. Now, we're going to divvy things up here a little bit and talk about the different regions around the world where coffee took hold because, you know, the, 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 the plant is, and, and, and the drink has played a very different role in different areas of the world throughout history. So we'll start with Europe. We'll kick things off talking about coffee in Europe, and then we'll talk about Asia. And then finally, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up by talking about coffee in the Americas. So let's start with Europe here. From the Middle East and Anatolia, coffee made its way uh, into Europe by way of Malta in 1565. Now, in Malta, captured Muslim slaves of the Knights of St. John, they made coffee for themselves, just like they'd done back at home uh, in, in, in the Ottoman Empire in what is modern-day Turkey and Anatolia. Um, and it wasn't long before it spread to their captors. Now, you know, I, I don't like coffee, as I've said, but I tell you what, the smell, mm, rich, intoxicating. If, if coffee tasted like it smelled i'd probably drink a lot more of it so you don't you can imagine you know these poor bloody these prisoners these slaves like that they're brewing up a pot of coffee or whatever else probably not a pot i don't know what they used back then actually i didn't find that out but brewing up a, brewing up some coffee and all of a sudden oh what's that smell i wouldn't mind a bit of that myself so the knights right they try they try this new drink they bloody love it and they introduce it to the maltese elite who also bloody loved it and its popularity amongst the uh, you know the uh, the social elite in malta meant that many coffee houses opened throughout the island and of course traveling merchants who visited Malta, they tried it, they loved it, and they took it back with them. And the very first coffee house that opened on the continent of Europe was in 1645 in Venice, a, a city that, of course, traded far and wide across the Mediterranean. And from there, it tore through the continent, through Italy and into Austria and other German-speaking areas of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, to France and then to England, and perhaps most significantly, to the Netherlands, in, in addition to all, you know, all the other sort of uh, you know, smaller or, uh, or, or less populated nations as well. In Italy, right, the Catholic Church carried on its grand tradition of being opposed to absolutely anything new and slash or enjoyable by opposing this new trend of drinking coffee. Once again, firmly on the wrong side of history there. Nice one of the Catholic Church. But then again, right... It all changed when Pope Clement VIII tried it, right? It, it was obviously, I mean, before this, it had been known as the devil's drink, right? The Catholic Church firmly against it. And then the Pope, you know, sucks down a cup of it and he's like, ooh, geez, I don't mind a bit of that. That is not too bad at all. And so Clement, he demonstrated the truth of the old saying, don't knock it until you've tried it, and fully supported the spread uh, of coffee once, you know, he, he knocked back a cup or two. He was well on well on side, and so it spread throughout Italy. And we'll come back to Italy, of course, at the end of the uh, at the end of the episode, because Italy and, uh, and and coffee culture so inexorably linked today. But back in those days, it was, it was just another nation, just another nation that was uh, swept up in this coffee craze, just as, of course, Austria was. Austria, uh, after the Battle of Vienna, the Battle of Vienna took place in, uh, in 1683 between the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and it saw the defeat of the Ottomans. And the story goes, and again, we, we might be on shaky ground here, but the story goes that the routed Ottomans, they left behind huge amounts of supplies. As they fled, they left all these supplies behind, which included bags and bags of coffee. Now, these supplies, they'd been, they obviously got captured by the Austrians, and they were put to good use. And the very first coffee house opened in Vienna not long after the battle had taken place. However, it's thought that the way that uh, coffee was served... Uh, broadly speaking, throughout Europe at this point, it changed significantly because of what happened in Vienna. Uh, given how bitter coffee is, the Viennese started serving it with milk and sugar. Understandable, you know, as I said, coffee's pretty gross. I think I'd rather just, you know, the milk and the sugar without the coffee, to be honest. Bit of chalky in there too, very good. Um, but this new way to drink coffee was named after a Catholic religious order, the Capuchins, and was therefore called a cappuccino. 
And this was one of the first instances of the way that coffee was served or consumed or whatever actually changed significantly as the, as the Viennese kind of took this drink and, and made it their own after, after this battle here. And again, whether this is exactly how it took place or not it remains a, a topic of historical debate, but certainly there's definitely a kernel of truth in there and, uh, and milk and sugar did become a part of, uh, of coffee culture, I guess, within Europe at least uh, from this point onwards, you know, largely thanks to the, uh, to the Viennese there. Anyway, in the wider speaking German world, throughout today what we'd call Germany, of course, at this point, Holy Roman Empire, lots of different kingdoms and principalities and all sorts of stuff there like that, free cities, cities and all sorts of things, right? Coffee houses first caught on in some of those free cities, in the cosmopolitan trading cities, such as Bremen, such as Hamburg, in the 1670s. Obviously, got a lot of merchants coming in and out, uh, bringing all these new exciting things with them. And so coffee uh, sort of made its first entry, entry into that part of Europe uh, via these, uh, th- again, these, these cosmopolitan cities. And, and after sort of finding its footing there rather quickly, it's spread further throughout the Holy Roman Empire, throughout other parts of the German-speaking world, and until by the 1720s there were coffee houses and cities such as, you know, Leipzig. Berlin, all sorts of other places there like that. Uh, we move on now to France, where it's thought that potentially coffee may have arrived around 1657, when a traveller named Jean de Thévenot, uh, sorry, francophones everywhere, Jean de, Jean de Thévenot, um, who, who is said to have brought it back from a journey that he made to the Middle East. Now, I couldn't find concrete evidence, evidence of this happening, uh, but what definitely did occur uh, was something else that, that, I mean, it wasn't long after this, you know, whether it, whether uh, Jean de Tevenot did bring back the uh, bring back coffee or not, it wasn't long after this uh, was supposed to happen that something actually definitely did happen to solidify coffee as a cultural mainstay of France, and in particular Paris, because in 1669, an Ottoman, an Ottoman ambassador presented King Louis XIV with a great big stack of coffee beans, sorry, great big stack of coffee seeds. <laughs> and uh, and this was instrumental in solidifying coffee as a big part of the life of, of people in Paris and more widely France. And you can see an emerging trend here. Once coffee caught on with the upper classes, with the aristocracy, with the big knobs who are in charge of places, whether it was, you know, the Ottoman Empire, Malta, uh, or here indeed in, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in, in France, it, it, it definitely influenced people very significantly, as it was the case with fashion and culture and all this other stuff. Once you got the ruling classes on side with something, it didn't take long for other people to sit up, take notice and, you know, what want to drink what the king was drinking, what to, what, you know, want to drink what the queen was drinking. And so that was one of the reasons for the proliferation of, of the drink throughout a country like France there. Let's jump over the English Channel now and talk about England, right? where coffee was introduced by, by, uh, by the Levant Company, which was a chartered English trading company. And the very first English coffee house was opened in 1651 by, by a bloke whose name was Pasqua Rosé. Now, Rosé, he was the servant of a merchant named Daniel Edwards. Daniel Edwards worked for the Levant Company. And Edwards brought Rosé back to London and opened a shop in Saint, Saint, who opened a shop in St. Michael's Alley in Cornhill in London. And three years later, right, three years later, Rosé didn't have too much of a good time in London. He got on the wrong side of the guilds. He was accused of being an interloper and kind of run out of town. He ended up going to Paris and opening up, up, up a, a coffee house there, which was much better received. Uh, but but the, uh, we're going to stay in England here to talk about, right, to talk about the Queen's Lane Coffee House, which opened in 1654 uh, in Oxford. Now, it was one of the 3,000 that opened in England by 1675. But the one in Queen's Lane is very significant because... It is still open today. It claims, perhaps correctly too, to be today's oldest coffee house in Europe, right? Now, I did a bit of research on this and I had a look at the place. I went online to, uh, to look up pictures of it. And I, uh, I have to say, I was enormously dismayed to find that their menu 
had apostrophes being used to pluralize words like wraps, wraps apostrophe s, and salads apostrophe s, and particular, and, and the worst one I would say particular, of course. And here's another. I mean, we have. I'm just. I'm firing on all cylinders today when it comes to giving people well actually uh, uh, fodder here because listen to this one. They had paninis, p a n i n i apostrophe s, right? Which technically speaking means something belonging to a group of panini. Because of course, as you all know, panini is the plural of panino. So when you go into a cafe and you order a panini, what you're saying essentially is, I would like a paninos, please. What you should say, of course, is I would like a panino. And then everyone will look at you and recognize you for the insufferable pedant that you are. And you can bask in the warm glow of their disapproval. Anyway, I couldn't believe that the Queensland Coffee House, you know, they've been around almost 350 years and they're still making the most rudimentary mistake a cafe menu can can have on it, right? A pluralized apostrophe. I mean, you you really do. You really do hate to see it. Anyway, English coffee houses, they became a big part of public life, right? Uh, especially in the, in, in the political sphere throughout the rule of Charles II. He was the English king. We've talked about him before. He ended up having his head chopped off. He was not a popular bloke. Um, and uh, these coffee houses, they were used uh, as meeting places, right, uh, for political subversives. And Charles actually tried to shut all of them down, which obviously did not work. Um, but it's interesting that they they uh, influenced the, uh, the you know the, the culture of England at this point by giving all these people a place to go uh, and meet and, and end up you know of course I'm not saying they caused the English Civil War because they definitely didn't do that but it's still a very interesting fact to think about the you know their the, their role in that anyway um, I read a lot of interesting things about what people in 17th century England thought about coffee I mean obviously there are other sources about you know how it was viewed in France and and, and Austria and all these other places but the English sources are a little bit easy to get your head, your head around when you're a native English speaker, obviously. Uh, and I want to share some of them with you because they're very, very good. Uh, one doctor in the mid-17th century had this to say about, uh, about coffee. This is what he wrote. <clears throat> Tis extolled for drying up the crudities of the stomach and for expelling fumes out of the head. Excellent berry, which can cleanse the English man's stomach, spelt differently to the first stomach, of phlegm and expel giddiness, with an E at the end, out of his head. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just the really bad handwriting of this doctor, and that's why we ended up with this sentence, but that is just, that, that is just a joy. Others, however, were less keen. A pamphlet that was published in 1674 uh, was entitled Women's Petition Against Coffee, and this is what it had to say. <clears throat> the excessive use of that newfangled, abominable, heathenish liquor called coffee has eunuched our husbands and crippled our more kind gallants that they are become as impotent as age. So, uh, yeah, not everyone. Not everyone, historically speaking, was a big fan of coffee. I also have to mention Sweden. Speaking of people who weren't fans of coffee, I have to talk about Sweden here and what might have happened there. Uh, it's absolutely br bloody brilliant. Have a listen to this again. Might not have actually happened, but, I t but if it did, I'll tell you what. Have a listen to this, right? Coffee was introduced to Sweden in 1674. And in 1746, right, a royal edict was so popular that a royal edict was issued regulating its use, along with very heavy taxes uh, and penalties for perceived misuse of this uh, of this new drink. If you didn't comply with the edict, you'd be fined, and brilliantly, you would have your cups and dishes confiscated. So presumably, you could have to drink it out of your cupped hands. I don't know how that worked. 
Um, this edict didn't work out so well and people continued to flout the law and, and drink coffee. So eventually, uh, coffee was just banned outright. King Gustav III was determined to prove uh, to the Swedish public that he was acting in their best interest by banning coffee and he was, he was determined to prove just how dangerous the drink was. And this is how he did it. In order to prove its danger, he found a pair of identical twins, sure, I'm with you so far, who had both been condemned to death. Now, I'm starting to wonder if this is in fact true when I'm hearing stuff like this, but never mind. So, identical twins that happened to have both been, conf- uh, I don't know what they did, but apparently they're both, you know, they're both, being, they're both being sent to the gallows here. And he goes to me and he offers them a commutation of their sentences, right? Brilliant. Bloody hell. They're going to get a life sentence instead of the death sentence. Absolutely on board with this, of course. But there's one condition. And the condition is that one of them drink coffee every day for the rest of his life and the other drink tea. Now, both had a physician to study them and to take notes, but here's the best part. Both doctors, right, died before their test subjects did. So they never, they were never able to publish anything because they never saw the results. They never saw who died first out of the prisoners. Isn't that brilliant? It gets even better, however, because hilarious, well, I say hilariously, it wasn't hilarious for Gustav III, but hilariously, Gustav III was assassinated before either of the prisoners died as well. So he never found out whether he was right about coffee either. <laughs> and <laughs> it gets even better than this, if you believe it, because the tea drinker died first at the age of 83, not the coffee drinker. What happened to the coffee drinker? I would like to read you an excerpt from the Wikipedia page on this uh, on this thing here. I would like to read this because this is absolutely hilarious. <clears throat> of the twins, the tea drinker was the first to die at age 83. It's not known when the coffee drinker died. Like, ever? Like, apparently coffee is, according to this study, coffee is an elixir of immortality because we don't know if the coffee drinker even died at all. Anyway. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The European, we talked a lot about all these different European nations, but the European nation that perhaps had the biggest influence on the global proliferation of coffee was in fact... The Dutch. Now, at this point in history, obviously, the Netherlands are punching well above their weight economically and are very close to being, you know, an economic superpower around the world with the with their East India Company and that sort of thing. So maybe it's not a surprise for you to learn that the Dutch, you know, had a huge influence on the proliferation of of coffee throughout the globe here. Much earlier than all of these coffee houses were spreading to all these other nations there, the Dutch and their East India Company, they were taking a rather different tack with this new drink. In 1616, the Dutch merchant Peter van den Brucke, right, he managed to secure not just coffee beans, seeds, sorry, not just coffee seeds from Yemen, but actual coffee plants, which up until this point had been a jealously kept treasure of the Yemeni that they hadn't shared with anyone. Now, van den Brucke, he brought the plants back to the Netherlands where they were studied and then carefully grown in the greenhouses of the Amsterdam Botanical Gardens. Now, this might not sound like much. This might not sound like much. But before this, right, the Yemeni had this near monopoly on the coffee trade and almost all the world's seeds, almost all the world's seeds, right, 
was sold from Mocha. And this monopoly was now under threat by the Dutch. And the Dutch exploited the fact that they had managed to cultivate these plants and spread them throughout the world, learning very quickly, of course, that it would be impossible to grow coffee in cold European climates. They instead exported them to the Dutch colonies in the warmer parts of the world, and in particular to Java in Indonesia. And this brings us very neatly to the spread of coffee throughout Asia. But before we talk about Java, uh, we'll make a quick stop off in India here. Coffee spread to uh, to India from the Middle East when a Sufi named Baba Budan brought it from Yemen to uh, to a place called Chikmagalur in in India in 1670. And even today, Chikmagalur is uh, is famous for its coffee farms. It's uh, you know it's, it's it's very well known for it. It's one of the most old. It's one of the oldest growing coffee growing regions in in Asia. They've been growing there for for hundreds and hundreds of years. But uh, certainly not one of the most prolific, as we'll come to here, because it, it, again, we we pick up a story of, with the Dutch who brought coffee plants to other Asian regions, Ceylon, for example, today known as as Sri Lanka, but critically into Southeast Asia, specifically to Java. Now, Java was for a time the world's biggest exporter of coffee, hence why the word Java is uh, is sometimes used as a a nickname for the drink. And Java really did, it had had ideal conditions for growing coffee plants, uh, which can only really be cultivated between the tropics of of Capricorn and Cancer. and most of the coffee drunk by Europeans and, and to a lesser extent, Americans uh, a little bit later on, most of it came from Java. And the Javanese also developed new ways to serve and consume coffee. The Indonesian coffee ende is, uh, is prepared with ginger, so a, a, another novel take on the, on the way uh, you know, to, to, to drink coffee. But it didn't quite catch on coffee in uh, in other areas of Asia as it had in Europe. In Japan, for example, trade restrictions meant that it never really got off the ground until the 19th century. Across the Sea of Japan, a couple of Korean emperors took a bit of, took a liking to it. But, you know, uh, it, it, you know, just like in Europe, it couldn't really be grown there or anything. So it, it didn't really find its feet in Asia in the way that it uh, the way that it did in other parts of the world, you know, specifically Europe. But it wasn't just in Java and Indonesia that it was grown in Asia. Uh, coffee was also produced in the Philippines in huge quantities and given uh, the, the, the regional differences throughout the country, it was actually possible to grow many different varieties of the plant there in the Philippines because, you know, there's there's highlands, mountains, there's flatlands, all sorts of different, you know, climates, that sort of stuff. So the Philippines is perfect to to grow a bunch of different types of coffee in the one place. And, and that's what people did for a very long time. The Filipino coffee market mainly exported to the US and it brought a lot of money into the country until 1889 when a fungus called coffee rust ripped through the plantations there and over 80% of Filipino coffee crops were destroyed. The country never recovered its position as a coffee producer. And who, you might ask, stepped in to fill this void? We now make a trip over to the other side of the world, to the Americas, right, to find out what happened over there and talk about how coffee ended up on that in that part of the world and what happened once it did. Coffee was reportedly brought to the Americas by a French bloke named Gabriel de Clieu. And again, this might be a little speculative or a little embellished. Uh, in any case, the story goes that this bloke managed to snag some cuttings of a coffee plant in France, and he took them with him on a voyage to Martinique in the Caribbean. Now, on the voyage, water was incredibly scarce, and it actually had to be rationed throughout this voyage, meaning that de Clieu had to share his precious water ration with these coffee plants in order to keep them alive. Can you imagine that? He half, I mean, you know, he's, 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 he's absolutely, he's bloody gasping for a drink of water, but he's having to give half of his ration to this bloody plant to keep it alive. But I tell you what, it's a good thing that he did because once he arrived on the other side, coffee arrived with him safe and sound. And uh, as a result, in the early 18th century, 
coffee had arrived in the Americas. And it came at a bloody good time. It came at a very, very good time because cacao plantations were suffering from a blight. Cacao was one of the main crops of the Caribbean at this point, And coffee was an excellent new thing with which to replace it. And so French-owned plantations... I mean, there's two sides here. Obviously, the French-owned plantations, they flourished with this new, you know, this this exciting new uh, crop that would, could be sold at a, a, for a great profit in a, a various parts of the world. But it also, of course, relied on the exploitation of slave labor in order for this money to be made. And, and, and you know, that is a, a very black stain on the conscience of, of, of many nations throughout the world. And, and, the, and the French certainly, uh, it, it was a very grim picture that they paint uh, for us at this point in history when... Uh, you know, they, they grew enormous, enormous amounts of, of coffee, uh, which they then exported worldwide and made an absolute, uh, you know, an absolute piles of money. But it was all done, of course, uh, from it was all it was all done with the exploitation that the blood and the sweat of these poor slaves. Um, but the, these these plantations, nonetheless, they they exported uh, the coffee around the world and also to the continental Americas, where in North America, it was a little slower to catch on when compared with the lightning quick uptake of coffee in Europe. People just preferred tea in uh, in Northern America. They, they preferred tea and, quite interestingly, booze, uh, both of which were much more popular than coffee was at this point. But this changed. This changed in the 1770s with the American Revolution and specifically with the Boston Tea Party. Now, many many of you, of course, will have heard of the Boston Tea Party when the Sons of Liberty dumped an, uh, an East India Company shipment of tea to Boston Harbour. It was one of the uh, one of the events that sort of led towards the American Revolution. And it won't surprise you to learn that this had a huge impact on the fortunes of coffee as a drink in North America because many people in the American colonies, they boycotted the tea trade, right? And what did they start drinking instead? Absolutely right. Of course, they started drinking coffee. And the Boston Tea Party and the subsequent Revolutionary War, it saw many Americans make the switch from coffee to tea, whether it was due to scarcity or price or political motivations, boycotting, whatever else they're like that. Coffee took off in uh, throughout North America. And even after the Revolutionary War, the ongoing political situation between the US and the UK continued to popularise coffee over tea. The War of 1812 saw the UK stop exporting tea to the US. And so again, for the second time in 50 years, Americans had a very good reason to find something else to drink. And a lot of these, a lot of this coffee that they were now drinking, as I'm saying, a lot of the, the stuff that's being exported, it came from relatively local sources, the French colonies that I mentioned beforehand. And I know I want to, I want to come, I actually want to come back and talk about these French colonies and specifically the plantations on them. We talked a little bit about how the American Revolution influenced coffee, right? How the, its fortunes as a drink were helped along by stuff like the Boston Tea Party, but coffee actually had a strong influence on a revolution that took place somewhere else in the Americas. And of course, I'm talking about Haiti. When it comes to Haiti, right, the coffee industry was instrumental, was instrumental in triggering the Haitian Revolution. By 1788, it's estimated that Haiti grew up to half of the world's coffee. However, the abysmal treatment of slaves in Haiti, a huge proportion of whom obviously worked on coffee plantations, this was one of the factors in sparking the Haitian Revolution, their terrible treatment at the hands of the French. The world's most successful slave rebellion was brought about by the proliferation of coffee and the growing demand for it around the world. The fact that these slaves were, you know, were worked to death and then eventually rose up, broke their chains and overthrew their masters to create a, a new nation. And it was all because, again, well, maybe that's an oversimplification, but I can tell you that the exploitation of slave labor in Haiti on the coffee plantations was instrumental in uh, in the Haitian re- in, in triggering the Haitian Revolution and and ultimately in 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 the destiny of that nation, uh, you know, as, as it exists today. Anyway, 
Coffee was also grown in many other parts of the Americas. Of course, we move now to South America, where it was introduced uh, throughout the 18th century, although wasn't produced there on, the, on, on a huge scale until we move into the, into the 19th century. In 1822, uh, Brazil secured its independence from Portugal and began to make a lot of money off of coffee. It cleared huge amounts of rainforest, built enormous railroads, and, and took advantage of a crop that was, uh, again, uniquely, well, not uniquely, but very well suited to the climate of the country and in, and in order to, uh, you know, bolster its position as a, as a, as a, as a young, fledgling, independent nation and, and, more importantly, bolster its bank account, I suppose, they really did look to, uh, to make the most of this, uh, of this enormously profitable crop. Before this before the before the uh, before Brazil secured its independence before 1822, coffee was, really wasn't much of a crop in Brazil. It existed, sure, but I mean it wasn't really grown in, in any great quantity. But after 1822, Brazil, as I say, cleared out enormous amounts of rainforest, which is obviously very regrettable, if and if it is very profitable, uh, in order to cultivate these coffee crops, and it went absolutely gangbusters with it from that point on. Within 30 years of independence, by by 1852, Brazil became the world's largest producer of coffee. 30 years after it started to make an effort to, uh, to actually grow the, grow the plant, it became the largest producer of coffee in the world. And this is a title that it holds to this very day. In fact, Brazilian varieties of coffee have now been exported back around the world to the point that they've been taken back across the Atlantic and planted and grown in Kenya, which borders on coffee's original home of Ethiopia. So it all does come back together in a nice, neat circle here. The world's largest coffee producer sending back these plants to where, or varieties of these plants, I suppose, to back back to where it started in the first place. Of course, there were other countries throughout the Americas that sought to emulate the success of Brazil, and they began large-scale efforts to cultivate coffee crops. Coffee markets were becoming more and more lucrative as more and more people became interested in the drink around the world. And any nation that had the right climate uh, in which to grow it stood to make a lot of money from doing so, especially, as I said before, remember, you remember the collapse of the coffee industry in the Philippines, this is where where uh, Latin America really started to go, you know, it was really off to the races here. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, in, in filling this, uh, you know, in filling this uh, this demand in the market, it, it led to the widespread the widespread exploitation and, 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 in many cases, forced eviction of many indigenous populations, especially in Central American nations such as Guatemala. But nonetheless, this trend did cement coffee as a hugely important source of income for many of the world's developing nations. And even today, this remains the case. Many poorer countries around the world, they rely on coffee as a primary source of income for their economies, and some have benefited very richly from it. For example, Vietnam. Vietnam has become the world's second largest coffee producer, overtaking Colombia in 1999. And... It's been a very good market to be a part of, I can tell you that. A, a very bloody good market indeed. Demand for coffee has grown to unprecedented heights as coffee culture has overtaken so much of the world as we know it today. And coffee culture, of course, in the 20th century at least, was principally driven by, of course, Italy. Now, Italians claim to have the best coffee in the world, while, of course, we all know that the best coffee in the world comes from Melbourne, Australia, especially now that, you know, I don't work in cafes there anymore. I was never particularly good at my job. Um, but the Italians, they make a lot of claims like this. You know, they, they, they talk about, you know, pizza like they bloody invented it or something. It's the best pizza in the world. I mean, come on, everyone knows clearly the United States has the best pizza in the world. Everyone knows that. But you can't deny that the Italians changed the way we consume coffee forever. Uh, with the 1901 invention of the espresso machine and the 1933 invention of the mocha pot. That's that weird sort of uh, very geometric looking silver pot that you'd put on your, uh, on your stove top there. And today, 
the popularity and the success of these Italian preparation methods have led to the rise of global multinational corporations fighting what has become known as the coffee wars, where the battleground is your wallet. And unfortunately, well, maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, unfortunately for this podcast at least, it doesn't have all the good bits, all the blood and the guts and the horrible murder. Instead, it's all about market shares and operating margins and balance sheets. <laughs> Boring, you know, that, that, those, those, I guess those are some of the wars that we're fighting these days. Anyway, that, my friends, is that. That is the story. That is the history of coffee. One of the most popular drinks on earth squeezed into uh, 40 minutes or so. So... The next time you slurp down a triple extra large half sweet non fat bloody caramel macchiato, think of the six hundred years of, of of global history that has gone into the creation of that monstrosity, and also, don't forget to put your cup in the recycling. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of coffee. I do hope you enjoyed it. I learned a lot about I mean, I learned a lot doing this research. Again, I'm not even particularly invested in coffee as a drink, but it was fascinating to learn something about, you know, global, global human culture here, uh, you know, while reading about this. And I'd love to do more episodes like this in the future again. So if you've got more ideas for, for, for you know, rather than a person or a place or a, or a or a, you know, an event, if you've got a thing that you'd like the, uh, the history of, then, then please let me know. Anyway, we're going to wrap the, the show up here with the boring housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.net or halfhousehistory.com. You can go to either one of those and, uh, and visit the website there. There's a contact form, old episodes, links, links to subscribe, and links, of course, to the shop, uh, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com, uh, where you can buy T-shirts, magnets, notebooks, uh, mag- uh, badges, all sorts of stuff there. And, of course, the Patreon page, where many generous people support me uh, week in and week out with their uh, with their pledges. You can get access to uncut episodes. Um, you can get access to behind-the-scenes stuff like notes and uh, early access to all these episodes as well. So if you're interested in any of that, get across it there. Um, and finally, it's the big 100th episode next week. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I guess you could loosely call a clip show. I'm going to, all the suggestions that people have sent in where there hasn't quite been enough meat on the bones to do a full episode, I'm going to do a bunch of very short little sort of five, 10 minute episodes on a bunch of different things. So if you've got something small, something interesting that happened that, that wouldn't merit a full episode, but might be a little interesting bit of a, you know, a bit of a historical tidbit, please do send it in. Go on the website, halfhousehistory.net, use the contact form there, and, uh, and maybe it will appear on the 100th episode. And also, just thank you for being here. If this is the first episode you've listened to, or the 99th, it's great to have your company. Uh, and a special thank you, of course, to all of the Patreon supporters who are, who are making sure that I am ruthlessly motivated every week to make sure I, I churn out this stupid podcast week in and week out. Anyway, that is that. I will see you next week for the very exciting 100th episode. I hope to have your company then. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, of course, a coffee-related question, as you would come to expect, posed by Redditor Prophesy, who asks, Where can I find Sky Coffee to compare to the taste of my ground coffee. <laughs>